Good evening. Welcome to Beijing Diary. This is Eric in Beijing. Over the past few days, there have been some extraordinary demonstrations in Hong Kong, and I was going to write up a blog post on this, but there's so many different facets to it, so I think I'm just going to talk through this, and then、uh, I'll put some links on my blog that you can check out if you want to study it further. So, first of all, let's uh, let's uh, get a little history here.、Uh, Hong Kong was ceded to、uh, Britain as part of the, I believe, it was part of the Treaty of Nanking in 1842. But、uh, it's interesting that the the minister who negotiated for the emperor he got in trouble. The emperor actually gave him a death penalty, but he didn't he didn't carry it out. He didn't end up being executed. And then the the minister negotiated for Britain. I think his name was Charles Elliot. If that's that's the name that sticks in my mind. Anyway, he was fired. So the emperor saying you gave away an island, and the Brits are saying all you got is a little island. <laughs> But that's how it happened. The island was ceded to Great Britain. Now,、uh, some people look at this as that you know this was something that、uh, was to accommodate trade, and in a way that's true. Uh, the, the Chinese government preferred to have the trade going on、uh, in certain contained ports. You know, they, China was a closed country; has always been a little bit suspicious of, of foreign influence and so on.、Uh, so, so Canton, which is Guangzhou, was was the trade city, but the island was really ceded and、uh, to to Britain as part of that negotiation. It was not really done. Voluntarily, it wasn't it wasn't、uh, an initiative from China,、uh, but it was so. So it was ceded to Great Britain, and then at the end of the 19th century, which is the 1800s, 19th century is the 1800s, right? 20th century is the 1900s. At the end of the 19th century,、uh, the, the colony had exceeded the boundaries of Hong Kong. It started to, you know, it was just getting too big, and so. Uh, they ceded extra territory. I mean, they they leased extra territory for 99 years from from China. So if you look at a map of Hong Kong, you see the island there, and then you see the surrounding area, which is actually situated on the mainland. The surrounding area was leased for 99 years, and that lease was up in 1997. So as that year the year、uh, drew nearer,、uh, people began to anticipate what's going to happen. And I was in graduate school in the university at the University of Regina in Saskatchewan、uh, in the 80s, and Canada was getting a big influx of influx of people from Hong Kong because everybody's saying it's going back to China. It's going to be you know everybody was nervous about it. So it turns out that、uh, the two people negotiating,、uh, Margaret Thatcher. And Deng Xiaoping both had an ace in the hole. Of course,、uh, Deng Xiaoping's、uh, strong part was、uh, that they they owned that territory. It had to be returned. It was leased. It was not purchased. But、uh, Margaret Thatcher's ace in the hole was the、uh, the island was owned by Great Britain, but not leased. It didn't have to be returned. So technically, she could have said, "Okay, we'll give you back the new territories, but we're going to keep the island." Well, if you look at a map of Hong Kong today, that would have split Hong Kong right in half. It just was not workable. So, 
it was clear that it should go back to China, and I think that was appropriate, because even though the island was ceded to Britain, it, it was ceded, as I said, under du duress. Uh, the Treaty of Nanking was really not a fair treaty. Uh, it's, it's a, in many ways, a shameful document. Uh, and, of course, Hong Kong did become a very prosperous uh, colony as a result of it, but it, it, it was in my mind, appropriate that it be returned to China. But she was driving a hard bargain, you know, and, well, we'll help to maintain You know, she wanted to preserve the, the lifestyle and the rights of the British subjects. So Deng Xiaoping uh, made a dramatic move and gave her an offer she couldn't refuse. It was really extraordinary. He said, we want it back, but... We will allow it to exist as a separate entity for another 50 years. That's half the, the duration of the lease. You know, so basically giving them another 50 years. Uh, but it would not be administered by uh, the UK. It would be administered by China, but under the one country, two systems policy. So Hong Kong is allowed to have their own system, but they're technically part of China. Well, Margaret Thatcher couldn't refuse that offer. So it was, uh, it was a brilliant maneuver on the part of uh, Deng Xiaoping and uh, also a very generous maneuver. And from China's perspective, I've mentioned this to talking to people in China, you know, about this extraordinary agreement between Deng Xiaoping and Margaret Thatcher. And, and they said, well, that's because we won. Well, you know, both sides won, but both sides feel that they won. It was a true win-win situation. So, what happens after the handover? Uh, China said, we'll, we'll, we'll let the, the people choose their own uh, leader. You know, they Britain was telling them, you know, we, we want them to have democracy. We want the people to have democracy. Now, I think that what China should have said is, yes, they can have a legislative council, but the governor will be appointed by us. We're going to do the same thing with Hong Kong that you did for 150 years. The UK did give them a certain measure of autonomy, but they had a governor appointed by Great Britain, and uh, they never elected their governor. Colonies don't elect their governors. But what China did is, oh, yeah, we'll let them choose their own leader. But, you know, doing it in a way that really it's, it's uh, uh, manipulated so, so that really China controls who the chief executive is. And I think that was a mistake. They should have just said, no, we're not going to let them elect a governor because you didn't. Uh, so what they did is they set up the system of uh, what they call functional cons constituencies. So Hong Kong has a sort of democracy, but it's not one person, one vote. And so it's very strongly weighted inside of the, the Beijing establishment. So the effect is that Beijing really controls who the leader is. And then they announced, well, you know, 2000, I think the year was 2012, they're going to uh, the the chief executive is going to be elected democratically. 
And uh, I started, I suppose, about 20, not quite 20 years ago. Let's see, I, I came to Beijing in 2004. And a couple of years before that, as I was planning to come to China, I think I made this decision actually in 2000. So I'd say about, about 18 years now, I've been listening to RTHK from Hong Kong. That's been sort of my uh, evening news for many, many years, since before I came to China. And so I think the first year, the first uh, target date was 2012, and then later they said, oh, we, we're not ready yet, we have to move it to 2017. Well, in 2014, China announced, okay, we're going to give you democracy in 2017 you're going to choose your own executive but we will pick the candidates then you can vote for one of them and I thought why am I not surprised <laughs> and the young people were livid and uh, one, one of my students in Beijing said Hong Kong rejected democracy. They didn't reject democracy. They rejected fake democracy. So they had a demonstration they called uh, Occupy Central. Now, if you've ever been to Hong Kong, uh, Central and Admiralty are two subway stops on the island line there. And Central, you know, that's the, that's, that's the center. It's the center of uh, government in, uh, in Hong Kong. And so... They they decided to have this uh, what they called Occupy Central. It was patterned after Occupy Wall Street, if you remember the Occupy Wall Street movement. So the people in Hong Kong uh, decided to have this uh, Occupy Central, and uh, they had uh, they had rejected the the arrangement. Uh, the le in the Legislative Council, there's a group of Law, lawmakers called the Pan Democrats. It's a group of, I think, a lot of parties in Hong Kong. I, I've, I've followed Hong Kong politics for years, but I, I don't have all the parties memorized. But th there's a group of Democratic parties, and they, they sort of stick together. And the Pan Democrats rejected that uh, idea, and it went, it went down. So that had already, the, the new idea offered by Beijing had already been rejected, but the young people were, were very angry very upset and they they set up this demonstration in the streets of Hong Kong the op Occupy Central and uh, it lasted through large part of the summer and then uh, eventually the police came in and cleared them out and some of them went to prison and uh, the, the demonstration petered out after school started the students started going back to school and they you know they they, they really didn't have I mean, their, their, their demand was quite extraordinary. They wanted to reverse Beijing's decision. Of course, they didn't have the power to do that. So eventually, it, uh, I mean, did they win or did they lose? They, they said, we'll be back, but they really they didn't succeed in undoing what Beijing had said uh, because, you know, they were basically saying, you know, we're going to force you to keep your promise, and they, they, they just didn't have the power to do that. And it was a grassroots movement, but the business community 
was not really behind it. In fact, it, the business community was annoyed by it because it disrupted business. Now, you've got to understand something about business people. They, they, the businesses, they are not inherently pro-democracy. They're inherently pro-business. They don't need democracy. You know, the, 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 the way the functional constituencies are set up, it gives power to the, the elite. And that's one thing you have to understand about today's Communist Party in China. It's very capitalist. It's not communist. I mean, it's not Marxist. They talk about uh, Marxism, you know, but it, it, it's not Marxist. It's very capitalist, but it's government-controlled capitalism. So China wants Hong Kong to prosper. China wants the business community to be strong, but they also want to have control. They want to have it both ways. So the business community was not behind this demonstration in, in 2014. <clears throat> so... Uh, the students, the young people, basically, I, well, I don't know. I shouldn't say they lost, but it, it kind of looked like they lost. So now this latest demonstration has to do with the extradition bill. So that's a, a different matter. That has to do with uh, not voting or anything to do with choosing the leader. It has to do with making arrangement to extradite people to China that China wants to uh, to arrest. And that really created a reaction. Now, I was watching uh, Bloomberg Opinion, and uh, Nishikopalan was explaining the difference. Uh, and she made some interesting observation in the, the, about the difference between the, the response of the business community because this time the business community was in favor of the demonstrations. Because, you know, the business community is nervous about Hong Kong. Is the, the idea with Hong Kong was that, you know, so near but yet so far. We're right next to China, but immune from China's legal system, which people don't really trust and don't really respect. And the reason they don't respect it is because it's used over and over again uh, for political purposes. So, as an example, a few years ago, there was a Canadian, or a Chinese person who was arrested in Canada, arrested by Canada because he was wanted in the United States, and Canada has an extradition treaty with the, the United States. And so, sure enough, right away, some Canadians are arrested in China. Well, these ha people happen to be Christians. They were, I don't know if you'd call them missionaries. or They, they were doing charitable work in Dangdong. I've been there, actually. It's right on the border of North Korea. A pretty town. I, I went there basically because I'm kind of interested in history, and the, they have the bridges that uh, the Americans bombed, half the bridge, you know, and they still have the bridges there. You can go there and see them. I was only there one day, but these people moved there, and they set up a coffee bar, and they were kind of helping North Korean refugees and doing that kind of stuff. And So apparently, because they were foreigners living in a border town next to North Korea, they kind of got on some kind of watch list. And so when, uh, when China was looking for some Canadians to arrest, they thought, oh, these guys would be convenient. So they arrested them, separated them, kept them uh, isolated, and uh, interrogated them for six hours a day, tried to accused them of being spies and tried to get them to confess to something because they wanted to trade them. Now, 
that is a that is a classic example of how China operates, and that's why it's it's the legal system in China is not respected. You can't lock up innocent people to punish their country and expect honorable people in civilized nations to to, to respect your system. So China's legal system is not respected. Well, eventually what happened is that guy was extradited to the United States and he pleaded guilty. He was a criminal. So China has no more use for these people and they they let them go. They they deported them. I guess they're doing mission work in Thailand and uh, uh, last time I heard. But anyway, they did write a book. It's called Two Tears on the Window and documented this uh, this atrocity. So, you know, that's, that's unspeakably dishonorable, despicable behavior. Locking up innocent people, arresting innocent people, not because of something they did, but because of something their country did. Well, recently the, the daughter of the founder of Huawei was arrested in Canada. And uh, same kind of deal. She's wanted in the United States, and I don't know. You know, she'll have her day in court. She's entitled to be presumed innocent unless and until she's proven guilty. But Hong Kong and, and, and Canada doesn't necessarily have to uh, give her over to the United States. They have a hearing, and with extradition treaties, um, you may know there are two conditions. One is, is there evidence? And the other is, is that a crime in our country? You know, so... If America says to Canada, we want this person, well, do you have the evidence? Well, no, we don't really have evidence, but we think, you know, she's the daughter of that guy. She must have done something. Well, then Canada will say no. You have to have evidence. The other condition is, is it a crime in in the country where she is? Is it a crime in Canada? So, for example, if uh, if you take the example of Liu Xiaobo, who was... uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize, so let's say he had gone and escaped to America and China wanted him back and China contacted America. Of course, China doesn't have an extradition treaty with the United States, but if they did and they, they said, we want we want him back, and America said, well, do you have the evidence? Oh, yeah, we got all the evidence. Well, then the other condition is, you know, is it a crime in the, in, in the local area? So if the United States said, well, what crime did he commit? Well, he... he, he openly advocated democracy on a website. Well, the Americans say, well, that's not a crime in America, so we're not going to give them back. So there, there, is, a, there is a process there. And, and, and Canada has, under the treaty, has power to make that decision. But the original decision to arrest is not uh, their decision. That's, that's an agreement by treaty. If America says, we want, we, we want to, you to arrest this person, they have to do it. And China doesn't uh, doesn't respect that. So, so this shows two problems. One is that they, you know, will arrest innocent people uh, to punish their country. And as soon as she was arrested, certain, soon enough, a couple of days later, they arrested a couple of Canadians, and they're being held right now, as far as I know, in solitary confinement. So, you know, this is the second time I've seen this happen. It's probably happened other times too. I don't I don't know. I don't know. But it shows two things. Number one, that China has absolutely no conscience about arresting people to punish their country. Not to punish them, but to punish their country. But it also shows that they don't respect extradition treaties. If they respected extradition treaties, they would understand that Canada has to make the initial arrest. And they would arrest a couple of innocent Americans instead of a couple of innocent Canadians. 
<clears throat> so how can you have an extradition agreement with a country that has no conscience about locking up innocent people to punish their country and that does not respect extradition treaties? You know, it's ludicrous. So the very bill that, that's be, that has been protested recently, it, it, it just, it's just unworkable. Uh, and it was uh, foolish for them to even introduce it, in my opinion. But the key difference this time is that the business community was nervous because a lot of people are saying, you know, we, we're not going to be doing business in Hong Kong if we are risking being handed over to China at any time. And so in the, in the Occupy Central movement in 2014, HSBC, the old... Uh, uh, Hong Kong, uh, Shanghai, what is it, HS, uh, Hong Kong, Shanghai Bank Corporation or whatever. It's the old British bank from the colonial period. They sued to have the young people cleared out. Get these demonstrators out of here, you know. <laughs> HSBC doesn't have any sympathy for them. But this time, they were giving their employees flex time to go out and demonstrate. So the business community got behind this. And uh, they're saying uh, something like, Two million people. I, I don't know if that's that's correct, but uh, last Sunday a huge crowd of people came out. But but before that, there was there was significant demonstrations day after day after day, and it became obvious that this thing was very unpopular. And so finally on Saturday, uh, it was withdrawn. I mean, it was not withdrawn; it was suspended. They didn't withdraw it, they, they suspended it. So I thought, okay, now people are going to go home because obviously it's dead. I mean, to save their face, they don't say they don't withdraw it, but they're suspending it, and it's not going to be introduced anytime soon. It's not going to be preceded, uh, brought it back into play anytime soon. But I was wrong. They, uh, on Sunday, they, they, there were twice as many people as been there before. So we've seen this a couple other times. Uh, the first chief executive was a guy by the name of Tung Chihua, and there was a measure having to do with security, where uh, uh, Hong Kong, pressured by Beijing, was introducing a bill to that it would allow them to arrest any person that was China considered a threat. And, of course, the people responded to that. They came out in large numbers. I think at that time it was like 500,000 and the bill was shut down and the, and the chief executive resigned. So uh, this time it was many, many more people, many more people. So, you know, what is the lesson from this? Well, the chief executive, under a sort of clever uh, arrangement, they say she's elected, but, you know, they call her 777, I guess 777, I, I don't know if that's exactly the right number, 700-some votes that put her in office. There's 7 million people in Hong Kong, you know. It's, it's some votes count more than others, and, the, and so the Legislative Council and the Chief Executive is dominated by the business community, but, but also by the Beijing camp, you know, the, the, uh, there's a certain constituency in the uh, system in Hong Kong that really sides with Beijing, and then there's the pro-democratic side that uh, tends to be resistant. So, basically, what it amounts to is that the chief executive is sort of handpicked by Beijing, and uh, 
and so you know that, that there's always a sort of reaction by the people against that person so now they're demanding that she resigns and uh she's saying she's not going to resign and uh i don't know if it's really a good idea to have her resign because they just put another person in there and there are there are two sides to this you know the 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 uh, the young people and the protesters aren't completely uh, right either. Uh, sometimes I have the I, a feeling that they're they're kind of spoiled. You know, they I hear reports like the police are using tear gas. Oh, what do you want? Live rounds? You know, <laughs> I mean. Uh, and I saw a, a video clip uh, the other day of a, of a police officer beating someone, but it was just a tiny little clip. It just showed this cop beating someone without any information as to why that person was being beaten you know you show me a little clip of the cop beating someone without giving me the information as to whether or not that was that was deserved or not i'm on the cop side i mean look we give police billy clubs and we treat teach them how to uh beat people when they're unruly so you know if he's doing what is his job uh, you, you, you've got to show me that there's, there, there's you know, if, if they're beating someone just because they're demonstrating, of course, that's not appropriate at all. So just to give an extreme, extreme example, during the Occupy uh, Central movement in uh, 2014, they were actually beating someone who was already handcuffed. That, those, in, in the United States, they would, uh, they'd go to prison. They'd go to a federal prison. They did go to a federal prison, uh, the, the famous Rodney King case. Uh, but the judge in that the Rodney King case, you know, he said the first, I don't know, was 31 seconds or 81 seconds. I can't remember the 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 number, but the judge said th- that first part of the beating was acceptable because the police are allowed to use as much force as necessary to restrain the suspect. But once they've restrained the suspect, you know, the, the, if they use more force than that, then they're actually executing punishment. And the courts are supposed to execute punishment, not the police. That's a very, very key point, and that's, I'm not sure that's always clearly understood by the police in Hong Kong. But if you want me to agree with you that there's police brutality, you can't just show me the police beating someone. You have to show me that they're doing it inappropriately. So I think sometimes I, I, I have... Uh, I think the demonstrators in Hong Kong are a little spoiled. You know, they... they any kind of reaction by the police is, is referred to or thought of as police brutality. The other thing is that uh, sometimes I think they're wasting an opportunity because they're focusing entirely on the one country, two systems policy and China's treatment of it. And in my opinion, I know a lot of people in Hong Kong would disagree with this, but I, I think for the most part, China has honored the one country, two systems policy. For the most part, it has worked pretty well. Now, I don't endorse China's uh, attitude toward it entirely. Uh, I think it was a foreign minister. Of, uh, uh, I was saw. It. I'll put a link for it on the blog. But a message from the foreign office in the UK. The Chinese foreign minister had said issued a statement the other day that the joint declaration. This is the joint declaration between the UK and uh, Hong Kong, and China. Uh, as a result of the negotiations between Deng Xiaoping and Margaret Thatcher, he said the Joint Declaration is a historical document. It's basically served its purpose. That's complete nonsense. The 
joint declaration has to do with the the treaty, the agreement for the next 50 years of the uh, one country, two systems policy. So you think about this. If you sit down and make an agreement with someone and you both sign it, and as soon as the ink is dry, that guy looks at you and says, okay, sucker, I got you to sign it. Now you have nothing to say about whether I keep my side of the bargain. How would you feel? And I've heard this kind of statement several times from Chinese officials. They obviously don't realize how completely dishonorable it is to say that. It's not a historical document. It will be a historical document in 2047. But right now, both sides have something to say about how the one country, two systems system operates. But that having been said, for the most part, uh, China does honor it. But there are certain aspects of China's system that are not good. As I said, you know, they have no conscience about locking up innocent people to punish their country. Now, I haven't had a chance to read that book. Uh, it's called Two Tears on the Window. When I, when I do get a chance, I think you can understand it's not available in China. When I do get a chance to read it, I'll have more to say about that case. But it's, that's, the, that's the case that happened several years ago. There's a current case going on right now uh, regarding the daughter of the Huawei founder, but this was the case uh, with that couple in, uh, up in the north, uh, northeast uh, who were arrested. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, I'm looking forward to it because it, it documents the whole process of China locking, looking, locking up innocent people and to try to trade them for a guilty person who was guilty Chinese person. Basically, here's how it works. If a, if, a, if a Chinese person commits a crime against the Chinese government and then goes abroad, China wants them back. But if a Chinese person goes to another country and commits a crime and gets in trouble in that country, then China takes it personally and arrests someone from their country you know, to try to trade with them. So my point is that I think the, the people in Hong Kong should be focusing on these aspects and telling China, look, we want to get along with you but you need to change these areas of your legal system so that we can work together. So right now, this is being seen as a great victory. They put down that bill. I don't see it as a victory. In fact, Hong Kong needs an extradition agreement with China. If some corrupt official sneaks across the border into Hong Kong with a suitcase full of money, they're investing in real estate, driving up the prices of real estate, it's ruining the colony. You know, I used to stay... uh, in Hong Kong for a hundred dollars a night at uh, Mount Davis Youth Hostel. Now you know it's uh, Hong Kong is getting expensive. I don't even go there anymore. I, I I go to Shenzhen, and I stay in Shenzhen. So you know the, the Hong Kong actually needs an extradition agreement, but they they need to straighten out some of these issues. It would be better for them to focus on holding. China's feet to the fire, but instead they're entirely focused on resisting China at every step. And, you know, 30 years from now, the time's going to be up. China will not, uh, China will have all the options because then the Joint Declaration will be an historical document. And uh, I was talking about this with my students. They said, oh, no, Eric, uh, China wants to continue this one country, two systems. Uh, China. China, China likes this. They don't, yes, 50 years, but they, they, they'll continue it beyond that. Well, we'll see.
I'll tell you one thing. It'll be <laughs> one country, two systems with Chinese characteristics. But I think that the focus of the Hong Kong people should be on sort of uh, holding Beijing's feet to the fire, so to speak, rather than just resisting at every turn. Uh, there were some young people who got elected to the Legislative Council, and uh, when they were taking the oath of office, they said some really disrespectful things. They called China, China, and uh, just really disgusting, and they, they were not allowed to, to take their seats, and I'm glad. You know, that attitude is not, not positive. So, I, I, I'm, you know, there's, there's fault on both sides here. As I said, I think the demonstrators are a little spoiled, you know, complaining about tear gas and rubber bullets. You know, what would you want? What, what would you prefer? The protesters at Tiananmen got live rounds. But also, Hong Kong democracy is kind of, kind of a selfish democracy. If you go to Hong Kong and work for seven years, you become a permanent resident. But there are Filipino housemaids who work for these rich Cantonese people. They've been there for many, many years, and they don't... The Hong Kong people's attitude toward them is, no, you don't get to be permanent resident. You're slaves. Go back where you came from. This is not an open democracy, you know, come with nothing and work hard and work your way up. No, it's a, it's a very elitist democracy. It's, it's, it, there's something about it that is very unattractive to me. But what I do admire, the whole world is, is watching, and what we should admire is the force of mass demonstrations. Peaceful, and this demonstration was largely peaceful, but not entirely peaceful. I saw young people picking, kicking bricks, pulling bricks out of the street. When I see that, I'm like, where are the cops? Bring in the billy clubs and the tear gas and the rubber bullets, you know. <laughs> it's not, it wasn't entirely peaceful. Scaling fences is not peaceful. And throwing bricks is not peaceful. So, you know, there, there, there has been some violence. But largely it was peaceful. And the power, the, 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 you see, the, the, the reason this is so important is because if you, if you become aggressive, then you justify any actions that are taken by the police to put it down because you're disturbing the peace. But if you have a peaceful protest, no one can say that anything about that. That's, that's pure democracy, right? The power of peaceful protest is enormous. So, uh, and, and it was largely peaceful, but not entirely peaceful. There were demonstrators who got out of line who were, uh, were inappropriate. So there is some fault on both sides, and the tragedy of this is that they're not working together for a common goal. And in my opinion, the pro-democracy people are wasting an opportunity. They should be focusing on changing China, not just on keeping themselves independent from China, because they can't do that forever. Hong Kong is not Taiwan. Hong Kong does not have an army. Taiwan has an army, and they've got the United States that regularly sells them weapons to keep themselves independent. They're, they, you know, they don't declare independence, but they have de facto independence, and it's in perpetuity. There's no time limit on it. Well, China doesn't agree to that. They say, you know, we, we have to negotiate reunification. But, I mean, there's no, there's no 30 years of 2047, there was no time limit. But Hong Kong does not have an army. Well, they have an army. It's the People's Liberation Army. 
But right now, uh, Hong Kong does enjoy a, a great measure of freedom from China. Now, sometimes I hear uh, a statement, uh, I think I've heard it on CCTV and maybe even on RTHK, but saying that uh, it's just the economic system that's different, but everything else is, is the same. You know, it's part of, Hong Kong is part of China. Well, in fact, in reality, the exact opposite is true. The economic system is the same. Everything else is different. China doesn't control religion in Hong Kong. In, in 2014, uh, in Zhejiang province, in the city of Wenzhou, the party boss uh, went around and ripped crosses off churches. More than, I don't know, I've heard up to 2,000, but the one Wenzhou pastor told me is 1,400. The number he gave me is 1,400. Well over 1,000 churches. They went up to the church, pulled the cross off and put it down. Went to the next church, pulled the cross off and put it down. Went to the next church, pulled the cross off and put it down. Went to the next church and pulled the cross off and put it down. You know, if they went to the, if the party boss of Zhejiang province went to Shabalong, uh, you know, if he went to Hong Kong and started pulling crosses off churches, those Hong Kong judges would put him in prison for a very long time. Hong Kong, China has a religious affairs bureau that controls religion, but they don't control religion in Hong Kong. They don't control education in Hong Kong. They have nothing to say about it. They don't control business in Hong Kong. They have nothing to say about it. Hong Kong has a great measure of autonomy, and it's something that, should, that shouldn't be taken for granted. And, of course, they don't take it for granted. They do appreciate their autonomy, but I think they're wasting an opportunity. Their focus should not just be on independence, because if they do that, they've got 30 years, and then it's up. It's over. It's all over. The focus should be on on changing China so that 30 years from now, the systems are much more similar and there can be a, a, a cooperative relationship. There's no cooperation now. So this is seen by the demonstrators as a victory. And in a way it is. But I see it as uh, a big disappointment also. Because in fact, Hong Kong does need an extradition treaty uh, with China and Hong Kong needs to figure out how to get along with China because China is, after all, the mother country. And that is the ultimate destiny. You know, the Bible says all authorities give my God. The authority in Hong Kong ultimately is China. Right now, it's the one country, two systems policy. The only thing that China really controls in Hong Kong is foreign policy. Hong Kong, China can tell Hong Kong not to let someone in. They control, the, Hong Kong has no independent foreign policy. But otherwise, Hong Kong is really independent. And uh, it's important for people like me. Because right now, I'm uh, on a tourist visa. I can stay in China for 60 days at a time. Now, if it wasn't for Hong Kong, you know, can you imagine if I had to fly back to the United States every 60 days? <laughs> that would be a little tough, you know. But I can take the train to Hong Kong and leave China without leaving China. So uh, I, I do go to Hong Kong quite a bit for that reason. But I'm interested also in Hong Kong because Hong Kong has been uh, of importance in, in sort of melding the, the East and the West, so to speak. But I'm disappointed that, that their focus is entirely on fighting the Beijing government instead of helping to bring about change. They should be focusing on helping China to, to change and become part of the, the civilized world and abandon those uh, lawless practices. Uh, 
and China, you know, has uh, created part of the problem because of their make a, make a promise and break a promise approach. As I said, I, I would have said to, to Britain, no, we will give them a large measure of autonomy, but we will choose the governor. Because that's, that's, that's what was their intention. They, they, they are going to control the chief executive, who is the chief, chief executive of Hong Kong, and they're not going to give that up. And they should have been honest about that. When you build expectations by making promises you don't intend to keep, you, you tend to build resentment. They did the same thing with Japan. You know, they negotiated the high-speed train. <clears throat> they need to get the technology to build a high-speed train, so they made a contract with Kawasaki. And they brought one of the trains over to China. And the agreement was, Kawasaki said, okay, we will let you, we'll give you this technology and allow you to build the trains in China. Now, why would Kawasaki do that? Well, apparently they got a lot of money for it. I don't know what the amount was, but I'm sure it was sizable. But the other part of the agreement was you cannot sell this outside of China. So what happens? China brings the train over. They develop the high-speed train in China. And then they, they announce to the world, oh, well, we made a few changes, so now it's actually our technology, so we, can, we have every right to sell our technology. <laughs> you know, it's very obvious that even while they were making the promise, making the agreement, they were planning how they're going to break the promise. Make a promise, break a promise, make a promise, break a promise. That pattern gives you what you want, but in the long term it's self-defeating because after a while nobody trusts you. And so making promises that you don't intend to keep builds resentment. So China is largely responsible for the resentment in Hong Kong. But that doesn't mean that, you know, that doesn't justify that resentment. The, the, the resentment on the part of the Hong Kong people, they're there. They're focused on on being independent from China and fighting everything China does instead of focusing on cooperation. Uh, I, I, it, it would be so much more productive if they could focus on on changing China and making it, you, you know, try to implement some of the the kinds of freedoms that uh, people in the West take for granted. <clears throat> and the principle that I keep coming back to, as I've mentioned in my blog before is the Magna Carta of 1215. And the key element, uh, I believe it's Article 38, which has to do with deprivation of liberty. Deprivation of liberty without due process. China does not honor this. China has absolutely no conscience about locking up innocent people for political purposes. And it would be much better if Hong Kong focused on trying to change that for all of China, not just keep themselves independent. Because what are they going to do 30 years from now? There's about 30 years left. Uh, no, it's less than that. 28 years left. 2047. The clock is ticking. If you just focus on being independent, great, you'll have your independence. But when that 28 years is up, it's over. But if you would focus on, you know, if Hong Kong would focus on changing China and compelling China to change so that they could make these extradition agreements, uh, I think it would not only benefit Hong Kong, but it would benefit all of China. That's my great disappointment with the, with the people in Hong Kong. Their focus is way, way too narrow. So that's basically where it sits right now. The extradition bill is suspended, not officially withdrawn. 
And I think this time, my sense is that Beijing is trying to tell Carrie Lam, the chief, current chief, chief executive, to stay there. They're not going to withdraw it because they want to save face, so they'll keep it there for now. And we'll see how the uh, demonstrations continue. I predict that they'll they'll peter out. But you know, I said that Saturday after the bill was suspended, and and I was wrong. They came out in full force on Sunday, more than they'd had. Uh, apparently, from reports I've heard, twice as many as they've had before that, and uh, and and very few police. It was largely peaceful, and and I can't say that with enough emphasis. If the people of Hong Kong have lots of people and peaceful demonstrations, peaceful demonstrations are have, have overwhelming power because they don't justify them, then any brutality is, is completely unjustified. If you start digging up bricks, and especially throwing bricks, and, you know, doing aggressive things, you know, you, 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 you really cut your own throat. And that's what they did during the Occupy uh Central movement and and what they call the umbrella, the umbrella movement, and uh, <clears throat> and to a certain extent uh, during this demonstration there was some violence, but the Sunday demonstration was really uh, largely peaceful and uh, mostly overwhelmingly peaceful and very large numbers. That is commendable. That is very commendable. Peaceful demonstrations in large numbers. And the people of Hong Kong can have whatever they want. But again, I wish they would focus their intention on changing China rather than just resisting China. Okay, you guys, I'll put some links on uh, on my uh, blog, and you can uh, do some further research if you're, research if you're interested. And uh, there will be more of this to come. You can be sure. Thanks for being with us, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is hosted online at beijingdiary.podbean.com. That's beijingdiary.podbean.com. <laughs>